Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, being conducted here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located at the corner of Nicollet Mall and 12th Street in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Why does this church invite people well-known and well-respected in their fields to come to this podium? And why do we invite the public at noon on Thursday, six or seven times a year without charge, to fill these pews or to listen over public radio? Because churches, we believe, have an obligation and this church has a special obligation, given its location and its history, to look at issues facing our society within the frame, under the dome, if you will, of an ethical imperative fueled by faith in a God who lives and works through history, through the ongoing story of human events. Where better to air the issues to ask the important questions and to examine the complexities. Coming in on the stream of that kind of persuasion is our guest speaker today, Dr. Alberta Arthurs. Dr. Arthurs is Director for Arts and Humanities of the Rockefeller Foundation. She is the first woman to be a director of that Rockefeller Foundation. Previous to going to that position, she was president and professor of English at Chatham College, Pittsburgh, 1977 to 82. From 75 to, 97, uh, to 77, that is, she was dean of undergraduate affairs at Harvard University, the first woman dean at Harvard, as I understand. She received her PhD from Bryn Mawr and her MA and BA degrees from Wellesley. Her husband is a research scientist. She is a mother of three children. It's always difficult within the span of a few minutes to give a, a true sense of the person being introduced. Uh, one focused way to do that with Dr. Arthurs is simply to list before you a number of titles of papers that she's written and addresses that she's given. It seems to me that they're really quite revealing. For instance, the future of the small college, priorities for humanities education, corporate governance and the advancement of women, what higher education has to offer business, the future of school teaching, current undergraduates, their worldview, the American Eve, Women in American Fiction, The Responsibility of the Undergraduate. And now another title is to be added to the list, The Liberal Arts in Changing Times. This one is coming to us live from the lips of one who has earned the right to our undivided attention and who has kept her commitment to us today in spite of a recent accident on the ski slopes of Vermont. Dr. Arthurs, we welcome you and thank you for making the special effort to be with us today.
This is the first time I've addressed an audience from a stool with crutches beside me, but it may illustrate that I'm a more experienced speaker than I am a skier. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to be with you today. I've only been in Minneapolis twice before. Every time I come, I think I don't have enough time here. It's just a wonderful city. On the other hand, I managed to hit a thaw, and uh, I managed to get here uh, at what I consider to be a very, very special occasion. So I'm doubly lucky today. I am going to talk about the liberal arts in changing times, um, along with all those other things I've talked about in the past. But I hope that you will patiently wait for that part of these remarks, because I'm going to begin with a discussion of public education, something that's on the minds of all of us, and then move to a discussion of higher education. I hope the two parts of, that, uh, of these remarks will connect well, and I am uh, eager to test out these ideas on you and to take your questions when I'm done. Some years ago, in a seminar on ed education held in a castle in Austria, I had a set of revelations about American education that was very personal and very profound. During three weeks of discussion, lectures, and informal exchanges with educators from many places in the world, I felt firsthand what I had long known only in some abstract way as an American and an educator. I long should have realized, better than I had, that this country's educational systems, both our basic and our higher educational systems, provide one of our greatest contributions to civilization and to the modern world. I also felt firsthand, and long should have realized, that the educational opportunities available in this country have not yet been equaled in any other nation in the world. Living for three weeks in that castle, situated between a mountain and a music festival, I gradually grew to understand that the tuition-free university education available in most other countries of the world is only available to a tiny, tiny population culled from many, many people. That that culling is done at extremely young ages, possibly before youngsters' interests have become clear or intellectualized. That social and political position and jobs are tied almost exclusively in other countries to that school selection process. That education for adults, although it has been seriously undertaken in many countries, is largely confined, unlike adult education in our country, to instruction for vocations or for hobbies. Gradually, over that three-week period, the concepts of education represented by my colleagues from England, Germany, Yugoslavia, Romania, and many other Eastern and Western nations began to seem as wondrous to me as the country I was visiting and the castle I was living in. Those systems of education, unlike our own, seemed curiously removed and elitist, reserved, as it were, for a traditionally prepared and traditionally qualified and very, very small sample of the citizenry in those countries. 
The educational edifices my colleagues represented, their castles of education, if you will forgive my metaphor, began to seem as romantically anachronistic, as dusty in the corners, as badly in need of refurbishing as the castle we were living in. And the plans they proudly described to me were far, very far, from many of the goals in education that we have already achieved in this country. Often, it seems, it takes the jolt of a foreign encounter to put into place, into perspective, the achievements of the American system and to remind an individual American like myself of the realities we tend to take for granted. So today, part of what I want to do is to celebrate American schooling. I also want to suggest, as almost everyone else seems to be doing these days, that it might be even better in the 80s. Let me describe, very briefly, the achievements of education in the history of this democratic society. One of these achievements is exactly the tie that exists between education and democracy. In the two decades before the Civil War, this country put into place, painstakingly and out of the conviction of its rightness, the beginnings of our unique system of open educational access. Public, non-sectarian, compulsory, and tax-supported education. It was the state of Massachusetts under Horace Mann's leadership that first promoted the idea of the common school, the opportunity for all children to have free primary school education. Gradually growing up out of that development is the basic assumption we all make today, the assumption that every American child has the right to instruction, at least to the rudiments of reading and writing and arithmetic. That assumption has become a caveat of this society. And so has the idea that such education will improve our democratic system because government by the people requires informed people and because education opens democratic opportunity. Indeed, the second major achievement of education in this country, as I see it, has been to link it to social mobility, to individual achievement, and even to overall progress in the society. Our streets were never paved with gold, but Americans have believed that individuals of intelligence and endeavor, schooled in our educational systems, could make gold, or at least could make good. Education has been valued because it has fortified and fed the vision of opportunity that diverse Americans have shared. Because it has been tied to the American dream, education has spread. From the 1890s through the first half of the 20th century, a major national achievement was the spread of universal education to the high schools and the growth and dissemination of the American belief that education aids individual achievement. A similar philosophy, or hope, led to the expansion of public universities in the 1950s and 1960s, and that same philosophy, or hope, has engendered the diversity of student populations we see today as older people enroll in courses. Women complete high school and college. More than 50% of American college students today are women. Other minorities make similar gains in numbers in our educational institutions. 
It was not until the first half of the 20th century that the mission of the American public high school was transformed from providing an academic education for a select few to serving the needs of all children between the ages of 14 to 17. In 1890, only 7% of the nation's 14 to 17 year olds were enrolled in American public high schools. By 1930, the number had swelled to 47%. By 1950, it was 67%. Today, 85% of all 14 to 17 year olds are in high school. Education and democracy, education and opportunity, education and the American dream. The movement for compulsory high school attendance was in large part a response to the 13 million immigrants who entered the United States between 1890 and 1920. Trade unionists and progressive reformers, each for their own reasons, joined hands to press for more schooling. In addition to ending child labor, progressives were also concerned with Americanizing these new immigrants, the majority of whom were from Southern and Eastern Europe, from countries that had not been previously assimilated into the American culture. In 1909, 57% of the children in the nation's largest cities were the children of immigrants. In Duluth, Minnesota, the percentage reached 74%. In New York, it was 71%. In Chicago, 67%. Acculturating these new Americans, making them part of the system and making the system work for them became a mission of our schools. During this period, a high school education, like a primary school education, became an entitlement for Americans. Because that was so, the American high school became defined, especially in the period between the world wars, in new ways, which illustrate the third major achievement of education in this country. American education has been flexible. It has been adaptable. It has been open to experiment and to change. For not only was the American high school changed from an elite to a mass educational institution, it was also heavily influenced by experimental progressive educational principles. At their best, progressive educators advocated teaching children how to think rather than requiring them to learn. And because progressives of the early 20th century viewed a uniform curriculum as an anachronistic holdover from an earlier century, they instituted, and we all know these things now, testing, tracking, voca vocational education, and the child-centered curriculum into the American school system. Arguing that schools should educate the whole child, they introduced home economics, health, athletics, clubs, guidance, and student government. Utility in everyday life became one yardstick for curriculum. Absurdities were certainly perpetuated in the name of progressive education. It was possible for one educator to pronounce business arithmetic superior to plain or solid geometry, learning ways of keeping physically fit superior to the study of French, and simple business English superior to Elizabethan classics. But despite those absurdities, by many significant and lasting measures, the reforms were a success. Much of the earlier pedagogy based on rote learning and authoritarianism was replaced in this period by an approach that mobilized a child's interests and made him or her an active participant 
in his or her own education. Useful and democratizing reforms have become permanent elements in American education. And because of its flexibility and willingness to experiment, America learned to school the non-intellectual, the non-college bound, the first generation Americans, Americans whose first language was not English, the disadvantaged. The schools learned to value and to work with the differences amongst students. As enrollments in high schools increased from 12.7% in 1910 to 67% in 1950, the subject interests and educational goals of high school students also changed dramatically. The percentage of students studying mathematics dropped from 89.7% in 1910 to 55% in 1950. The percentage studying science declined from 81.7% to 33%. Often these figures are taken to mean a decline in the intellectuality and educational interests of our students. I would submit that they reflect equally the, the increasing percentage of students of all backgrounds and interests and aims and motivations who are in our high schools. As these figures indicate, traditional educational systems had to be changed because educators and administrators found themselves working with more students and more parents of widely different backgrounds and aspirations. American experimentation and ingenuity in education helped the system to do this with less failure and less fear than might otherwise have been the case. During this time, it seems to me, in a very tangible way, the high school became the symbol, the center of citizenship in every town in the country. In the New England mill town where I grew up, the high school flew the flag daily. It opened its auditorium to visiting lecturers and politicians who came to visit our town. The high school collected everyone in town at its football games. It fostered organizations like Scouts and Future Farmers and Future Teachers of America. It fostered citizenship awards, PTA activities, volunteer organizations, religious understanding, essay contests, bake sales, and rummage sales. It provided almost all of the music and drama in that New England mill town. It offered the community lessons in civility and ceremony through its proms and graduations. And it provided in its teachers the only intellectual role models most of the youngsters in town knew. It offered all the kids in town the chance to know each other. It was a leveling institution. I was certainly self-conscious about studying Latin and making the honor roll, but it was also an inspiriting institution which made it seem day in and day out that democracy worked. It's not surprising, given the centrality of the high school for the local community, that Americans developed proprietary feelings about the high school. We felt and still feel a sense of ownership about our schools. And though high schools have changed, including those in the town I grew up in and towns like it, that sense of citizen ownership in the schools persists as another strength 
and another achievement of the American school system. As citizen strongholds, our schools have had to meet successive and heavy assignments given them by the society. The burdens we place on our schools is extraordinary. So, in 1957, when Sputnik scared us all into educational reform of another kind, the schools responded to the national challenge to improve the teaching of science, math, and foreign languages, to strengthen the curriculum and to emphasize academic achievement. And in the 60s and 70s, when questions of social justice and, e and equity provided a center for American reform, the schools were the nation's center for addressing those critical questions. In 1966, after the riots in Watts, U.S. Commissioner of Education Harold Howe II wrote, it is up to the schools to decide whether the energies of that revolution can be converted into a new and vigorous American source of progress or whether it will rip this nation into two societies. We were placing the burden for integrating this society on our schools, and that was a heavy burden. But schools have been, in our time, the focal point for the struggle for integration and for the resurgence of ethnicity and for movements on behalf of the handicapped and many other special interest groups. Again and again, Americans have expected their schools to reflect and to reform their society. Given the centrality of schools and schooling in American life, given the expectations placed on the schools by the society and the broad sense of ownership of education engendered in the American public, it is not surprising that it is also a tradition in this country to be critical of the schools and to attempt improvement of them. Here are only two examples. There are lots more from our critical past. In 1870, these words may sound relevant even today, William Franklin Phelps declared, quote, poor, school and poor, poor schools and poor teachers are in a majority throughout the country. And he wrote, quote, hundreds of our American schools are little less than undisciplined juvenile mobs, end quote. In 1930, Professor Thomas Briggs in his English, le English lecture at Harvard declared, quote, that the nation's great investment in secondary education has gone sadly awry. There has been no respectable achievement in the subjects offered, end quote. And in 1930, he pointed out that only half the students could find the area of a circle when given the value of pi and all necessary data. We have studied, surveyed, and scrutinized our schools continuously during the time that we have been building them, and we have found fault with them always. So it is not surprising, nor is it unimportant, that in the mid-1980s, the schools are the focus, once again, of assault and of attention. Currently, according to one count, there are 184 state and local commissions of education at work. There have recently been 280 task forces and commissions and committees of one sort or another, of which 100 have issued some kind of report, 20 of them of major regional and national stature. The most widely publicized of these reports tells us that, quote, 
if an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. Our once unchallenged preeminence in commerce, industry, science, and technological innovation is being overtaken by competitors throughout the world. That report, titled A Nation at Risk, points out in vivid detail what has happened to Americans in the current educational system. The details sound very much like those that I've quoted from 1896 and 1930. The rhetoric and the examples offered in this report are extreme, but they are also arresting. This kind of hyperbole does force us to pay attention, and surely, as has been the case in the past, our remarkable educational system merits attention. Whether its primary problem is that the classes are boring, as one critic states, or that there are too many layers of bureaucracy atop the teachers, as another critic states, or that the schools function as separators of the social strata in this country, or that crime and violence predominate, as another critic states, whatever the problems described, the stage is clearly set for national reexamination of the schools, for priority attention to them, and for improvement in our schools. The need for improvement in the schools and the opportunity for such improvement has made an unprecedented claim on the nation's attention just within the last year. This is a good time to be concerned about the schools, even if we do so because we think the schools are bad. It is also a good time to be concerned about our colleges and universities, even if we do so because we think that they are bad. Attention to the schools must not mask or divert us from another crisis in American education, that is, the current problems in our colleges and universities. These two arenas of education, indeed, should be coupled, not separated. Their problems need to be seen in a continuum which can help to provide us with fresh ideas, even answers, to those problems. Trouble in our colleges and universities is unlike the cyclical recurrences of crisis in our schools because while educators and the general public have long claimed ownership of the schools, this is a relatively recent phenomenon in higher education. The colleges and universities have been subject over time to milder and less visible and more specialized scrutiny and suggestion. They have been left pretty much to themselves and their reforms have been self-started. But recently, in recent years, there has been a kind of imposition from the government and attention from the public that has been unusual in higher education. That attention and the crisis in our colleges and universities follows a long period of growth, a virtual explosion of growth and prosperity and confidence following World War II. For as more and more students finished high school in the, in the reforms that I have described, the numbers entering colleges also grew. Between 1870 and 1970, college enrollments actually doubled every 14 or 15 years in this country. And in the decades following World War II, those numbers exploded even more dramatically. More and more of our institutions became public institutions. More and more students engaged in undergraduate education. These changes carried with them other changes equally dramatic as the universities built libraries, laboratories, and dormitories as fast as they could, as they competed 
to hire professors as they expanded, well, not only in campuses, but in their courses and in their curricula offerings. Higher education in that period, after World War II, had never had it so good, and it was almost totally unprepared for trouble. First sign of trouble came in the 1960s with the disruptions caused by student radicals, and then the difficulties accelerated. The realities of the 70s and 80s have been harsh. Declining student enrollment, spiraling costs, reductions in federal and state funding, student apathy and even anti-intellectualism, fa faculty discontent and demoralization. In the mid-1980s, the values of the universities are in question. Their priorities are subject to pricing and to market demand. Leadership, administrative and faculty is troubled and tired carrying financial concerns into every decision. Education suffers, and the answers are extremely hard to find. One way of looking at this crisis in higher education is to examine the disjunction that has developed between higher education and the society that surrounds it. And as a concrete example of this phenomenon, the disjunction that exists specifically between the schools and the colleges and universities. But strangely, although higher education today is largely public, although it educates almost half of all American teenagers and enrolls about 15% of all American adults, it persists in maintaining a peculiar distance from the society it serves. Although it is not the most overt problem of the universities, the isolation of the American Academy and the American professorate from issues of public policy and public concern is a problem of real magnitude with negative consequences for the colleges themselves, for pre-collegiate education, and for our society. There are several reasons for this isolation. One of them is that our professors have become so specialized in their knowledge that they can hardly talk to each other, much less to the society around them. Academic specialists are most interested in teaching their specialty to rising specialists, not to students who will enter society with other aims and assignments. And another isolating factor, surely, is the steady tradition in American education of decrying the immediate, the practical, the vocational. I won't try to explain the complicated ambivalence of American higher education on this subject, it is enough to say that higher education has, throughout its history, responded to changes in the economic and social substructure of America, but it has always worried that in doing so, in meeting material ends or the vocational interests of students, it would be corrupting its original goal. Sociologist, sociologist David Reisman points out that the vocational and the academic have always been mixed in American higher education, but by the very virtue of that fact, the wrestle between them is often very acute. In 1820, the colleges refused, even though the public pressured for it, to include in their curricula science and engineering, modern foreign languages, and any education in the, professors, in the professions. In 1828, Yale University issued a report which staunchly rejected a more modern curriculum asserting that it was not Yale's mission to educate, quote, men of mere practical detail, end quote. Instead, they would continue to offer instruction only in classical languages and literature, thereby rejecting the sciences and professional education on their campuses. 
Union College, established in 1807, was the only college that chose to integrate science and the liberal arts, and in 1830, Union had the highest number of college graduates in the country, 96 compared to 71 at Yale, 48 at Harvard, and 20 at Princeton. American higher education had, at that point in time, given up its claim to influence on the American scene. It sat back during a period of rapid expansion in this country. It should not be surprising that educators at the time put the blame on the elementary and secondary schools. Charles Eliot, in 1869, helped to write the balance, saying, the university must accommodate itself promptly to significant changes in the character of the people for whom it exists. The institutions of higher education are always a faithful mirror in which are sharply reflected the national history and character. Good words, then and now, presenting a challenge to the universities that is pertinent all over again. It is extremely important for our philosophers, our educators, our professors to interact in issues and ideas of public policy in this country. The future depends on that. Local community involvement, priorities in places which the university and the community jointly inhabit is critical. We must find links between business and higher education. We must find links between science and technology and higher education. Technology and business today are raising many of our most critical, complex, moral, and political questions, but they cannot alone supply the answers to those questions. We must subordinate those questions to the imaginative and moral life as our educators know it. Higher education can help us achieve success and progress in the midst of these shifts and changes in an increasingly complex world. And our colleges and universities must relate, interact with our schools. Oddly enough, although the schools prepare their students for them, colleges and universities have been largely disinterested in the schools. Periodically, in fits of creative criticism, higher education has made proclamations to the schools, dictating the curriculum of the college-bound high school student by establishing admissions requirements or by abandoning admissions requirements. The high schools, by and large, have been left to react to such prescriptions with the flexibility and fortitude that I have already described. Sometimes the colleges have added whole dimensions of concern and controversy to American schooling as they did when they created the college entrance examination tests, the now familiar SATs and achievements, which were designed to test the schools as much as the students. Colleges and universities have exercised yet another kind of effect on schools as they have opened or narrowed their doors to certain kinds of students as they have recruited students on the one hand and selected them on the other, as they have admitted certain groups of students or not, as they have determined financial aid policy or defined exactly when a student is needy or meritorious or independent or resident or non-resident. Aside from such gatekeeping, some of which has certainly been self-serving, some of which has been liberating and rich in idealism, 
our colleges and universities have felt very little responsibility to or responsiveness to our schools. Even teacher training in much of higher education has not been considered a mainstream activity, although the colleges quite clearly do educate the teachers in our schools. It is still difficult for our very best students to prepare to be public school teachers in many of our very best colleges, and our major research universities are content to place all responsibility for the pre-collegiate sector in departments or schools of education. This is true even though the departments and schools of education are themselves acutely and intelligently aware of the importance of involving arts and sciences faculties directly in the training of teaching. Teachers, research on education has as well traditionally been left to the social scientists and historians who are attached to departments and schools of education. These are the kinds of problems that schools and colleges can really change today in the current climate of concern about schooling and concern about the efficacy and dynamism of our colleges and universities. In this environment of questioning, of restructuring, of assessing values, schools and universities can benefit by recognizing the traditions in the society and the challenges in the society that they can share. In truth, there are the makings here of a true continuum. It is no longer true that, it, that public schools are public and that colleges and universities are private. That has changed. It is no longer true that the schools are the mass education system and the colleges are the elite system. That has changed. And it is no longer true that the schools are the non-sectarian system and that the colleges and universities are the sectarian system. Those allegiances have also changed. All of these distinctions are historical and past. The truth is that there is a flow of shared interests and concerns across our educational institutions that should link them in action on behalf of students and teachers. This can be one of our most productive and creative times in American education. Uh, education in this country itself has been one of our most creative contributions to civilization. If it is true that we have given to education much of the burden of fulfilling our aspirations as a productive democratic society, if it is true that we expect our educational institutions to transmit truths and values and inspirations, then it is also true that our educational institutions are ethical institutions in this society with the purpose of binding like and unlike people as no other institutions in our culture can. To that end, the resources of our colleges and universities can be richly helpful to school teachers and school administrators and school children and hence to the society as a whole. As I have tried to argue, the colleges and universities will themselves benefit from such involvement with public issues with public ideas and with meeting obligations to the society. Helping the schools to be better will make the colleges and the universities better as well. It is the imaginative and moral life that the liberal arts, our colleges and universities can and must address in this thrusting, threatening, technological century. 
The colleges and universities must not disassociate themselves from the realities of technology, of vocations, of citizenship, and political and moral choices if we are to survive. They must not disassociate themselves from the instruction and preparation of the young and of their teachers. All of us who are educators must work to connect the study of human tradition, the search for truth and values, to the practical workings of the world. A last word. As I look around this great space and realize the mission that church and individual citizens have taken on in this speaker's forum with its profound purpose, I am impressed by the fact that this institution and the individuals associated with it have made the commitment to knowledge, to hope, and to practical understandings that I am advocating. You are here making systematic and conscientious efforts to connect a great institution, the church, to the practicalities of our complex societies. You are taking leadership in demonstrating the necessary connections between humanistic values and the technological, pluralistic culture we have created. I hope that our institutions of higher education can similarly become proper warriors against the current crisis in education and in humanistic values. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Arthurs. It was said to me only last evening by someone who has very good reason to know that given the skilled, dedicated, animated, and good-humored person that you are, that you have had a very marked impact on the Rockefeller Foundation, and that indeed the arts and humanities, which were treated separately before your coming, have been brought together under your dynamic leadership, and we can understand that having had this exposure to you today. The Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, that our guest speaker today has been, is Dr. Alberta Arthurs, educator, director for arts and humanities of the Rockefeller Foundation. We are pleased that the Pillsbury Company Foundation has uh, entered in as a co-sponsor today of Dr. Arthur's being with us. And I'm happy to announce that this program will be rebroadcast over Minnesota Public Radio, both AM and FM, this Saturday noon. And that's a good word. Perhaps while the questions are being gathered from the larger audience, I could pose one that's been put to me earlier. Uh, what is the incentive for pursuing a broad-based liberal arts education today? There are practical incentives to pursuing a broad-based liberal arts education today. We all worry about what our children are going to be doing when they grow up, and our children certainly worry about that. In fact, there's no better preparation for careers, for work in the broader society, for making a living than the kind of liberal arts education that teaches you to reason, to read, to formulate ideas independently, and to exercise your own judgment in the world into which you will be moving as an adult. Those are really the kinds of values and skills that a liberal arts education attempts to teach, hopefully in a broad-based, 
humanistic, value-laden way. That's what we hope. It's another reason why it's so important for the people in higher edu education to interact with the people who are teaching our children in the schools. Let me toss that in just as an added thought. Next question. Over the past few years, there's been a steady decline in high school senior SAT scores. To what do you attribute this decline and what should be done about it? On the one hand, that decline represents the fact that our schools have declined. The scores are often used to illustrate that fact. Let me posit another set of explanations. More and more students in our culture are taking those scores and headed for college. When more students of more backgrounds, more aims and aspirations of different talents take those tests, clearly the tests themselves are going to be affected. We should not overlook the fact that more minority students are taking the tests, more women are taking the tests, more students whose parents themselves did not go to college are taking those tests. I could go on, but it seems to me that that is a critical and often overlooked factor in those tests. I must say also that I think we should treat the tests as one more educational experience, not the most important or the only one that we and our children face. Question from the audience. Do you feel that the public school can compete with the private school? Yes. Um, in fact, I think the public school continues to embody our best hopes, our best thinking, our, our greatest aspirations, not only for youngsters, but for the society as a whole. I'm committed to that, as I think most Americans are. Private schools, independent schools, as they prefer to call themselves today, are very important institutions because fre frequently, with a freedom and a flexibility and a readiness that, that our public institutions lack, they can experiment with fresh ideas. They can enroll kids and see whether it works. They can hire teachers of unusual kinds and see whether they work out. They can try fresh curricular ideas. They can break the bounds of our ordinary expectations about education. And at their best, that's what they do, thereby setting a pace and setting a set of challenges for our public system. Both systems are important, and I'm glad we have them both, both in higher education and in pre-collegiate institutions. But the public institutions remain our greatest hope for this country. Another question from the audience. Norman Cousins in The Healing Heart argues for the integration of courses in humanities into medical programs and by extension into legal study programs. Do you support this concept? I really support the introduction of humanities and the ideals of humanities instruction into all of our pragmatic and political and pressing concerns and into professional education. Indeed, I do. I could give you some excellent examples of the kinds of results that can take place when the, the study of ethics or the long historical view is brought to bear on the kinds of problems that we address on a day-to-day -day basis. The uh, Rockefeller Foundation was responsible for the Green Revolution, which fed people all over the world who were hungry. But it was important to take a different view, a philosophical and historical view on that development as it unraveled, as it unfolded, because much of what we did in those cultures and societies as a result of a scientific development like the Green Revolution needed correction. 
our, the people affected, the cultures affected, the societies affected needed a different kind of help. And that's where the humanities come into play. Here's one of a slightly different flavor. Ellen Goodman described here as a speaker the life of the American supermom. You seem to qualify for the title. How have you survived so beautifully? <laughs> you know, our, um, our sons and daughters are going to do it differently. I really believe that. I watch my own kids and their friends, and they're working things out together in ways that still amaze me. They accuse me constantly of being sexist, of living out the old ways of doing things in my own life, as determined as I am to open up the future for both men and women. They'll do it differently, and I hope they will, because I think it's been hard for those of us in our generation to make the kinds of decisions, to find the ways, to discover the avenues, to open the roads to doing things together as men and women. So I find my hope, and perhaps my true answer to that question, in the youngsters coming up behind us. They'll know how. Maybe they'll even have the time to teach us a little bit before we're through. How would you evaluate President Reagan's recent statement on education? President Reagan's interest in education is um, important to all of us. It is, uh, it's excellent that he has decided that education, after all, belongs on the national agenda. Maybe all of us helped him decide that, because if you'll remember, there was a time when he didn't think it did. But I think that the pressure of not only uh, schools and school people themselves, but of the American public has placed education high on the national agenda once again. In his most recent comments on American education, however, President Reagan described its problems as largely being crime and violence in school corridors across the country. That's the kind of exaggeration I think we owe it to ourselves to correct. Uh, more thoughtful people who have looked at the statistics suggest that crime and violence affect only 10% of the public schools in this country, but that problems of disrespect to authority, problems of difficulty interacting with teachers and responding positively to the educational experience characterize a great many more of our American schools. If we can work on the problems of improving teacher morale, of improving teacher status in our society, of giving the teachers the incentives they need and the information and instruction they need to do their jobs better, if we can, as citizens, help our teachers to understand the kids and help the kids to work respectfully with the authorities in their schools, we will go a long way to improving the system. I'd put the focus on helping the teachers rather than on patrolling the corridors in American schools. Here's a good one-line question. Where can an English major get a job? Is this question being asked by a particular English major or on behalf of a particular English major? Because I probably should see the resume and whether it's well written, however. <laughs> More importantly, all of us are tramping around hard these days looking for jobs, and it's not a whole lot easier for the computer jock or even the engineering student 
than it is for the English student or for the, or for the music major. My second child is a music major, and I do worry about where a music major can get a job. The important thing in all of this, of course, is that you can't really spend a lifetime working unless you love what you're doing. And defining what you love and what you're going to do for the rest of your life begins in those important early years of education. What a mistake it is to tell a young person that engineering is a better thing to do because there'll be a first job at the end of the bachelor's degree than to tell that young person to major in political science because that particular young person's intellectual energy and heart lies in the study of how governmental systems work. You have to do what suits, what fits, what's going to work for you as an, as an individual. First job mentality doesn't make a career. Anyway, that English major will get a succession of jobs, probably wind up doing something totally unexpected and wonderful, like being a minister or a teacher or even giving money away at a foundation. <laughs> I, you say about becoming a minister, I'm remembering Frederick Beekner was asked uh, what he was going to do by some dowager, and he said he was going to the ministry, and she said, did you think of it on your own, or were you ill-advised? <laughs> How can education transmit Western values that provide cohesion in our society? Well, I, I, that's, that's, a, that's a fair and important question, and a lot of what I tried to say today has to do with the transmission of the values of this society to our young and the expansion and improvement of our society as a result of that transmission of values. Um, I think that can be done in, uh, in all of our classrooms by talented teachers fortified by the work of parents at home. Let me use that question, though, to add something else to um, the questioner, uh, to the question. I believe we also have to transmit more than we do about the values of other societies. And those of us at the Rockefeller Foundation and in other places are particularly concerned about assuring that Americans, particularly young Americans, learn more about the rest of the world than they know. We're no longer the only society that needs to be heard or heeded in an increasingly interdependent world, and yet Americans are alarmingly ignorant about world affairs and about other cultures. We've got some programs at the Foundation, and there are a lot of good people working elsewhere on trying to improve that. Sometimes that means more foreign language study in the schools. I don't think that's the only answer. I think it means that when youngsters study American history, they need to learn more about our interaction with other countries over the course of our own history. Uh, I think it means that when, they study, that when they study foreign languages, they need to study more than the literature of other countries. They need to study in those courses the culture and the mores and the manners of other countries. I think it means that our English courses need to be broadened in many cases to do comparative work with the literatures of other countries. In any case, this is something we have to work on real, real hard. Thank you. I'm going to pose a question, a final question to you, which uh, I'm going to ask you to respond to after I've made a few necessary announcements, and then that'll be the conclusion of our program. Uh, so you can mull on this. Uh, you have worked most of your professional life as a, an educator. 
What values do you hold that have motivated you? And while you think about that, let me just remind the radio audience that they have been listening to the Westminster Noon Town Hall Forum, originating at Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, that our special guest and speaker today is Dr. Alberta Arthurs, who is a noted educator, director for Arts and Humanities, the Rockefeller Foundation. I'm Donald Meisel, moderator of this forum. Let me announce that the next forum will be Thursday, March 15th, that our speaker will be Garrison Keeler, writer, storyteller, humorist. He hosts Minnesota Public Radio's A Prairie Home Companion, which is also broadcast nationally over American Public Radio. His topic, Changing the Light Bulb, Can We Meet the Comedic Needs of the 80s? Come early, I think the place will be crowded. So, let us turn to that question. You have worked most of your professional life as an educator. What values do you hold that have motivated you? And preliminary to letting you respond, let me say how pleased we are that you've been with us today, but go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> I suppose that like lots of other people in education, at every level of the educational systems we've created in this country, I have been largely motivated by the vision of a better society, and uh, especially of a better society for our young people. Uh, I really think that it's still in my head that we can improve what we have and make uh, the world an even better place than it is. That, of course, is a foolish way to live because you're destined to be disappointed very, very often. And I have lived, as many of us have, with the feeling of having failed in one enterprise after another, inevitably with goals of that kind. But I think what motivates perhaps most of us in the educational community is that sense, despite the disappointments, that it can be done, that we can transmit the best that's in us to others, that we can work toward the improvement of our society and the world. E.M. Forster said, only connect. Those are two good words to live by in my experience. Thank you.